connection with your environment is a state of mind, not just your location. But I would say that for those of us who are so caught up in either urban lifestyles or very speedy lifestyles or a rat race of one sort or another, being in a radically different environment allows for some kind of electric shock to take place. Hi, everyone. I'm Liz Kasky. As a travel curator, cook, wine aficionado, and design lover here in South America, I've always been fascinated by the stories of how creatives pursue their dreams. What's the energy behind a great chef and restaurant? How is that tasty cheese made? Why does this wine speak to me? What was the inspiration for that hotel? Or simply appreciating the artistry of an old world weaving with contemporary design. I'm constantly searching for local flavors and am passionate about sharing them. Welcome to In Search of Flavor, a podcast that explores the experiences, ideas, and stories behind the fascinating trailblazers in the region and the beautiful projects they've birthed. So pour yourself a glass of wine, dial into your wanderlust, and get ready to be inspired. When was the last time you saw something for the first time? That's the question that today's guest, Stephanie Bonham Carter, will make you ponder. In 2003, she and her husband, Michael Mezdag, landed in the Galapagos Archipelago, one of the most pristine natural sanctuaries on the planet. Bewitched by the unspoiled raw beauty and intimacy with nature, they left change forever and decided to return to build their dream, a tented safari camp. In our conversation, Stephanie will take us on the journey of how they brought sustainable hospitality and what she calls appropriate luxury or glamping to this marvelous untouched corner of the world, all while raising their family in this wilderness, I may add. Guys, find a cozy spot to hear this super inspirational story. I guarantee it's going to make you want to pack your bags for the Galapagos ASAP. One note about the audio quality today. We had also recorded this session back to back with the previous episode and the mic problem continued. However, The good news is that we have a new mic, and this is the last episode where you'll be experiencing this. So once again, sorry about the quality, but Stephanie's interview is so good that we wanted to bring it to you anyway. Stephanie, you have a very interesting background in that you grew up in Ecuador and then you moved to the UK when you were a teenager. So, I mean, this was long enough, a couple decades ago, that Ecuador was a very different place than it is today. I mean, can you describe a little bit how Ecuador was, you know, as a child? And, and then like when you arrived in Europe, what was this transition for you? And how did that, how did being that Latinist stick with you? Yeah, well, that brings back a lot of memories. Obviously, at the time, I'm 47 years old. So you can imagine this is several, many decades ago. And I think the world at the time was not as connected as we know it now. So countries were somewhat more authentic, so to speak, or perhaps a little bit less homogenous. And Ecuador was not as developed. And you can imagine the jump to a place like London, not just any place in the UK, but London. I did not know how to get on the tube. The language and cultural difference was quite brutal, as well as the weather. But it was a fantastically enriching experience. Where were you in Ecuador, just to start? I was in Cusquito. I had half the population than it does at the moment. 
And it was quite a basic town, I would say, actually. What it was to what it is is really different and a lot less developed. So, so yeah, it was quite a dramatic jump. And were your, what, were your parents, what was the relationship to Ecuador? How did you, your family arrive in Ecuador? My mother is Ecuadorian. Mm-hmm. My father was English, and he moved there to play the bassoon in the symphony. And my mother's family is very musical. What were your memories as a child, like smells and, you know, growing up in Quito was like, like, what are things that when you were in London, you would say, oh, I miss this. Like, what was that? Yeah. Well, it's funny. As you asked that question, I immediately thought of eucalyptus. There were massive forests of eucalyptus. Obviously, this is Andean culture. Crispy, cold mornings, beautiful blue skies, quite a lot of rain, probably more than we get at the moment. Hummingbirds. I do remember seeing hummingbirds very easily. Again, you still see them, but no matter where you went, you would see them. A lot more indigenous clothing as you walked in the city. Perhaps things that you no longer see as widespread in Quito, tripamishki, which is, you know, the barbecue of tripe on every corner. Now you see it in like a couple of places in the city, but not quite as much. And perhaps the Catholic influence was more obvious then than, than it is now. Talk me through, like, how did you get into the travel industry? Because you worked, obviously, in, on, in the media side of it. You know, I have noted here that you traveled the world for eight years. Is this like continuous trip or a series of trips? How did travel become part of your your fabric? I mean, is this something that, you know, besides being a bicultural family, was this something you were born with, the nomadic gene that they call it? <laughs> well, actually, I often think that there is that nomadic gene. Absolutely, very much so. Well, first of all, when I was in London, I I finished school and went to university in London. And of course, it's a very multicultural place. So I had friends from all over and I was always fascinated by their culture. I was curious. I liked to understand how people thought and what the the cultural background was. So it seemed only natural that wanting to see the world was the next step. So when I graduated from university, I started looking for jobs that would enable me to travel for more than just your holiday. And I stumbled upon a job which was in in media, in promotional media, which would allow us to go for several months at a time to one destination. So it wasn't the quick business trip in and out. We would go anything from one to six months And often there were very far-flung places like Niger or Congo or Micronesia. And the more remote the place, the more excited I got. (laughs) I absolutely loved the challenge of arriving in a place, knowing nothing about it and leaving, having a sense of a deeper understanding of the nuances, the cultural nuances in each place, how history would result in behavior, how religion would affect the way that people interacted. I got very interested in politics and economics and, again, the impact that that had on development. So it was all-encompassing. 
And as I said, the more remote the country, the more interesting I found it. What was the most remote place that you went? Well, several, but, you know, being able to go to Libya and Gaddafi or go to Congo trying to look for the gorillas without really understanding because there was no real tourism industry. You, you needed to have those contacts. I don't know, going to places like Micronesia, which was so far removed from the tourism radar at the time. And of course, because of my job, I was able to speak to businessmen and politicians. I was very young and naive at the time, but it was a fascinating experience. And I suppose that because of that business exposure, I learned to discern between the type of travel experience that I loved versus the more mainstream travel. So when the time came to translate this personal experience at the camp, we were able to choose what we loved versus what we didn't, what made something more authentic versus what made something more mainstream, if that makes sense. That does make sense. When did you meet Michael? So tell me how you two came to be a a couple and then a team because, you know, you embarked on this journey together at the camp, as you call it. (laughs) When did he come into the picture? Was it on one of your trips? (laughs) Yes, it was. uh, I was taking time off in Spain, in the south of Spain, in Andalusia, where he lived at the time. His parents were based there, although they are Dutch, but they were based in Ronda. And we met through mutual friends and we were not very young. We were in our late 20s. So, of course, that's the time in your life when you've been there, you've done that. And when you meet someone that's special, you start working on life together. So when we met, we both enjoyed adventure and I loved his get up and go, his willingness to get out of the norm very easily. And so at the time, he was working with a regional government in Andalusia. And a year after I met him, I actually moved to Barcelona. And yeah, within a year, I was going back to Ecuador on holiday. And so I asked him to join me. We went, we did a whole tour of all the regions in Ecuador, the Amazon, the rainforest, the mountains, and we ended in Galapagos. And when we got to the Galapagos, without any particular project in mind, we went up to the highlands and one of the locals got talking to Michael. I mean, Michael loves talking to people and he loves learning about real estate and what projects are available just because he's very curious. And so this gentleman said to us that if we wanted to, he could take us to this property that was for sale. So we walked for probably three kilometers, going through this elephant grass, not really seeing much. And then eventually we climbed a tree following this old gentleman and he showed us the view and the view was stunning, just absolutely stunning. So from elephant grass to our eyeballs, to this gorgeous view of the ocean Pacific with all these scattered islands, We were totally flabbergasted in awe and we went back to our little hotel in town because, of course, at the time, you know, we were more on a budget and we started dreaming. Really, it was a dream. 
And we thought, okay, what could we do? You know how you have moments in life when you start dreaming of what you think is impossible. But very quickly, it turned into a real possibility. And so that's how our personal relationship and our project, life project, was very intertwined. And they grew hand in hand. So what did you do? Did you go back and find that guy and say, hey, we want to buy your property? Or did you go back to Europe and kind of like mull over? And then how did you go from like going on vacation in the Galapagos to saying like, hey, we're going to start a a hotel project that's completely different than anything that's ever been done here? (laughs) Well, we had one night in Quito before going back to Europe and we got the telephone number of the owner of this property. So... The previous owner was a cattle farmer and he had passed and he had three daughters and none of them were interested in this property. So we arranged a meeting with them hours before our flight, just again, because we were curious and we got talking. And so to get an idea, just because we thought that it would be fun. So we then flew back to Europe and continued dreaming. So... That initial conversation with the owners became somewhat more of a potential reality. And then we thought, okay, what could we do? What would we do? And we thought, okay, somewhat this place was reminiscent of East Africa. You know, the landscapes with a canopy and and the sort of the coloring and the obviously not the wildlife, but but yes, the the visuals of it. And to build a hotel seemed totally out of place. Mm. In a way, it was almost a sacrilege. So we we kind of pictured in our minds what a tented camp would actually look like. And it felt very fitting. Mm. The fact that you would be exposed to the elements, that that sort of nostalgic, romantic sense of adventure. You know, you're not out in the open waiting for the lions to eat you. You are in a place where nature is very tame and you can be very close to it but you could be immersed in it. Because of course, if you were sleeping in a concrete building, you wouldn't have that exposure to the elements. But somewhat, if you were under canvas, you would have that sense of times past, that element of adventure, which I think as humans we crave, and it's really quite hard to find these days. And so, yeah, one thought, one dream led to another, and we kept on researching. And little by little, we thought, okay, it is time to go back to see if we're totally crazy. And we thought, yes, we went back. We were totally crazy, but we decided to go ahead with the project. And what year was this? 2000. And so we visited for the first time in 2003. 2004, we went back. And by 2005, we actually bought the property. Okay. And moved there. So you guys, in 2005 then, you have this property and you're leaving everything to go set up what this tented camp in parentheses hotel is going to be. So you arrive there and what do you do? I mean, like, how did you, I mean, I don't know, you don't have an architect for exactly for like a tented camp, but you must have some, you know, you have to have somebody that can help you plan and I mean, it's such a process. I'm so interested in the process of how, you know, everyone as creative goes from these moments that you know you have to do it, but like, how do you do it? And then bring that into, you know, to being something you touch and and live. (laughs) Yeah. 
It was all very organic. So we had a tiny budget. We had a very limited budget. And so we had to make it stretch. So we did a lot of research and we looked for ways of maximizing what we could and making it realistic. So Michael went to Africa to look into suppliers, 10 suppliers. We ended up then going to Australia on our honeymoon and life happens. We found just around the corner a tent supplier of fine quality tents, which ended up being fantastic. That's how we found our tents. Then one again on our honeymoon, we went to visit Michael's brother next door in Bali and we designed all our furniture and sourced quite a lot of the materials because in the Galapagos, of course, there is very little wood supply. There are very few artisans. So it made sense to source at the time what we could from from Bali, but we designed everything ourselves. So we couldn't afford an interior designer or an architect of sorts. So, so we had advice from Jan Allen, who was involved in several projects in Kenya, Shamboli being one of them. So he, he was the first one to advise us. And he came to the Galapagos once, and then we moved the project on with a local architect in the Galapagos. Right, because the camp is, you have a component of some construction, but it, ha- I mean, because there's obviously decks and a wood, wood component, but you have to have the tents give that vibe of low building in the sense of like you're, you're surrounded by nature. The Galapagos has traditionally always been very much like a, at least in certain segments of travel, it's always been very much a cruise destination. And, and or you stay down and do like day trips. So you're, I mean, you're proposing something that's wildly different on the side of a hill with a view, intense. I mean, how did you look at like, well, how many people do we think we can get to come to this? Like, who is our market? How do we get them here? Like, what is, I mean, I'm just sort of interested when you're always coming in as a visionary, people kind of regard you as being a little crazy. Yeah. I mean, let's to be perfectly honest with you, we didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't. <laughs> we didn't. We, we were totally crazy in retrospect, not at the time. At the time, we thought we were perfectly sane and we knew what we were doing, but we didn't. Because, of course, we had to learn about electricity, about plumbing. The tense part of it was the easy part. Of course, you set up a tent. But you have to think of access. There was no road of electricity. There was no electricity of water. The Galapagos is a place where there are no sources of fresh water. Uh, I mean, certain islands limited, but not Santa Cruz. So you have to think of water collection. So it was the infrastructural part of it. And we had to learn and we had to learn very, very quickly. So, and we were managing our own project. So from the infrastructure, the architecture, the design, And that was hard and fun, but we didn't know. And we grew organically, trial and error, lots of research at a time when Google wasn't available because, of course, we didn't have any internet. So we learned it all from a book, (laughs) speaking to people. We did a lot of speaking to people, both abroad and in the Galapagos, learning from people's experience. So it was fascinating. It was hard. It was crazy. And of course, it has, there has been plenty of things that we've added over time. But at the time when we arrived, we lived in a two-man tent. There was nothing. You know, it's funny because if you come and stay with us now and you see us in our full glory, you don't imagine little us living in a two-man tent. 
with an outside loo and, uh, you know, showering with packets. It, it was very much a raw, wild adventure. Again, we didn't really know what we were doing. What we knew is that the way to explore the Galapagos at the time was largely cruising. In fact, when we first started, 90% of our guests would do a cruise and stay with us for a couple of nights. Before COVID, 90% of our guests weren't going on a cruise and they were staying with us for their full Galapagos experience. But this didn't happen overnight. It happened organically as we learned what worked and what didn't work and what the appetite of our travelers was and how we could make things happen for them. Our project wasn't one of here is our business plan and let's make it happen. It was more here is our lifestyle proposition. This is how we want to live our life, daring to live out of the box and praying, hoping for the best and actually making it happen. (laughs) I suppose our experience was so life-changing in terms of our first trip there that we wanted to share that with like-minded people who like us would go to a place appreciated for what it is beyond the holiday more of a life experience and then trying to make it happen over the 15 years that we've been operating in the galapagos you have buzzwords that mark the market We went from experiential travel to transformational travel. And all those words just fitted perfectly into what we did without us knowing. Do you know? That's what we did when we decided to move there. What was that experience that moved you so deeply being in the Galapagos? I mean, what was that? I know it's hard to put feelings into words sometimes, but, you know, there's something that moves us to do, pursue something that's this big. So, I mean, what was it that you wanted to show people, if you can encapsulate that in, in a few sentences? It is. It's very simple. Nature. Nature in its full glory and its full splendor. Watching a sunset night after night and seeing how different that sunset can be developing a relationship with a mockingbird that comes and sits by your window day after day, getting into the rhythm of nature, learning that a full moon would mark the tempo for the next month and would mark the weather for the next month, knowing and experiencing that just before the rain, centipedes would come up and they are the the thermometer, so to speak, for what the next month would give you. So so it was that very basic, raw relationship with nature that makes you feel so alive, that makes your senses come alive without needing the staging that travel has grown accustomed to. Mm -hmm. Do you think that when you're in that kind of a remote location, you're able to create that bridge with nature more in a more deep and meaningful way than when, I mean, if you live in suburbia, you can go outside and have a park or backyard. I mean, this is like something that when you're more off the grid that you're able to achieve that sort of, it's a deep connection. Mm -hmm. I feel it's like you dial into some oneness with the universe, like on a much more like direct level or there's less distractions. Yes, it's a very good question. I would say that connection with your environment is a state of mind, not just where you your location. But I would say that for those of us who are so 
caught up in either urban lifestyles or very speedy lifestyles or a rat race of one sort or another, being in a radically different environment allows for some kind of electric shock to take place. I don't know if that makes sense. So I suppose that if you are a more either spiritual or connected person who's able to observe that beauty in nature in the orchid sitting on your desk, you don't need to go to far-found places. But but for some of us, that experience does help. And it does help to ignite that relationship with your environment that perhaps you wouldn't so find so easily. Well, it's immersive. And you're also not usually not tied to your normal responsibilities, like your everyday routine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Walk me through like how you, you know, you just said that when you started, 90% of your travelers were doing cruises. And by, you know, 15 plus years later, it's exactly flipped before COVID that 90% were staying childhood cruises and staying with you. How did this take off? Like, I mean, what, what was that organic that why did people come why did they stay why did they, why did they start choosing this over the, the traditional experience well it really takes me back to the very very beginning list so we didn't have a magic formula as i mentioned before it wasn't a business proposition when we spoke to people in the industry who had more experience it was very clear to them that you needed a certain number of tents to make it feasible financially feasible for the number of stuff that you would need and there was a magic formula frankly we didn't care much for it at the time we thought okay we're going to do nine tents because 18 people is what we can manage 18 people is what we can potentially cook for make sure that they have a personalized experience we didn't think of it in terms of a business proposition as i mentioned so Little by little, we started having guests who would ask us for itineraries. And so we started building them. We started catering for them. We started tailoring trips for them. And within a few years, we found that we actually had fully fledged, all-encompassing safaris that made people actually really happy. So it wasn't just those that felt seasick that wanted to avoid the cruises. It was people that wanted to have a different Galapagos experience that would allow them to have more choice. So cruises are a wonderful way of seeing the Galapagos because, of course, you go to explore further outer islands. You will be able to see more nature in terms of its volume. But some people want to have a blend of a more personal and tailored experience where they have a say on how their time in the Galapagos would look like. For example, families. Families are one of our biggest and most successful segments. I suppose it happened by default because we had our children there. And as a result, we became somewhat experts in catering for families with younger children. And of course, families with younger children don't necessarily want to be in the confinement of a cruise 
you know, when you have children, you know, firsthand you worry about what would happen if they need a doctor or what would happen if they have a tantrum or what would happen if they need a nap or a snack at those awkward times or if they have jet lag. Well, when you're in a cruise, it's a lot harder to accommodate for those needs. When you're staying at the camp, you have me who is a mother and I have my children were born there and brought up there are housekeeping staff or kitchen staff, they have children themselves, so we know how to cater for them. And when we organize our activities, our first question will be, what age are them, are your children? And according to that, we will make recommendations that are age appropriate. So again, it's a long-winded answer and I divert, but... It's actually a good way to segue because one of the things I do want to touch about is that I, I feel the Galapagos is one of the best destinations in Latin America for families, precisely what you're bringing up, not only because of the ease of what you're citing at the camp, being able to cater to families, but I think that when you see children in nature and like the way you're describing, they know, like we're born wired to be part of this. We're just putting ourselves in this societal box, if you want to say that that's how we you know, have learned how to live, but it doesn't mean it's the way that we were born to live, if that makes sense. Like, and so kids, when you see them in these natural settings where they can observe just all of the flora and the fauna and what happens in a day, it's like paradise for them. I mean, I see it here just in the countryside when we go to visit the south of Chile, it's, but in a place that you add the tortoises and the bluebird boobies and you can go snorkel and you, I mean, you have all of this I don't want to say it's exotic, but it's very different than your nature in any other setting. I mean, it's like, what is the reaction kids have? I mean, what do you see? Like, when we talk about transformational travel, it's always like in a spiritual retreat content. What does that look like for a family? Because I feel that could be really meaningful. I think, and as I remember moments over the last decade when I've seen children at the camp and what makes them tick and what makes them go, ooh, ah. Well, first of all, it's not always the contact with a big shark in the ocean that marks that unforgettable experience. Often, the highlight of some children is being able to pick up an orange in the orchard or running wild and free at the camp, getting really quite intimate and in close contact with tortoises. Yes, and then, of course, you would have them snorkeling with sharks, not thinking much of it because it's somewhat natural. So on the one hand, you have fearful children who are amazed at their own courage to confront situations which were so out of their comfort zone to the more banal experience of picking that orange in the orchard. Mm. So they're able to live something completely new for them. I mean, and that gives them this whole set of like skills, basically, of how to confront situations. Yeah, that. And then in terms of families, what's lovely is to see how when people relax, they fall naturally into a more human rhythm. And you see them relaxing and connecting in different ways. Often it can be a cathartic experience. And you might experience families who have to go through lows before they reach their highs but then when they leave the camp and their Galapagos experience they are deeply appreciative in a in a deeper human level Mm. 
So how big is your camp now? It started with nine tents. Yeah, so it's maximum 24 guests at any one time. And we can cater for them and we can make each one feel special. You know, they're not a number. They have a name. You build a relationship with them over time. And we can keep it at that very personal level. So I want to talk a little bit, I mean, you know, talking about these places that are still wild and untouched. Do you feel, I mean, in general, the Galapagos, because it does have a lot of traffic with the cruises, obviously, and is on a lot of people's bucket lists, families and otherwise. Did you think there was a degree of over-tourism happening in the islands at all in the past years before we worked up to COVID? Did you see from, you know, in this trajectory that you had since you started that it just kept increasing or there were like, it was becoming unsustainable in any way? Because you guys are almost the definition of a sustainable business in the sense that you're really like lowest possible impact in every way? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Yes and no is the answer. No, from the perspective that the Galapagos is a national park and be it what may, 97% is national park with regulations. So you can only go to certain visiting areas at certain times. It's organized, structured, regulated. So from that perspective, overtourism looks nothing like overtourism anywhere else in the planet. But then, yes, from a Galapagos perspective, because while cruises are regulated, land-based tourism came in as a bit of a surprise. And yes, you have properties and operations which have more conscience, but then you also have your average pop-up hotel or better breakfast, which is not necessarily so aware of the impact that over supply will have on the islands. And it's a chain. This all happened with more airlines having access to the islands, more flights being able to bring in people, and as a result, more price competition and lower prices. And it's almost natural that when you engage in a price war to bring prices down, you will open to more people. So the, the Galapagos opening, though, did you see, it sounds like what you're describing is the land portion was increasing more perhaps than some of the, the cruises that tend to be on the, in a higher niche of, of travel. And then you get into things like building more hotels as a water issue. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of food, all the services that go with having more people basically on, on the land. I mean, demand was growing for both, for both segments. And you have cruises which are in a higher echelon and you have cruises which are not. So you have the entire spectrum. And same thing in the land-based side of things. You have the higher echelon operations and the more mass tourism properties that can cater for for a cheaper option. So you, you see that in both segments. It's not one or the other. And that pressure will come from demand. Of course, you need more people to deliver services. But then let's not forget that the Galapagos has a local population, which is growing. And it is growing rapidly. And they are residents of the islands who have their needs. So it's both. I mean, the entire global population is growing, right? Mm -hmm. That puts pressure on natural resources. 
So it's not just tourism, it's also local population growth. Maybe you can walk us through a little bit, like just some of the, the things that would be your signature touches when they're there that, you know, people really are looking to do because it's, you have a mixture of land and water. It's not that you don't get on, out on the water at all, but it's not the essential core of the experience being on a boat. So obviously it's like, what are some of the things that you would do while you're there? We try to balance it. If you come to the Galapagos, it's imperative that you go to visit other islands because it's only when you go to see uninhabited islands that the Galapagos makes sense. You see what evolution evolution actually means, how different species adapt to their different environment. You see nature in its rawest and purest form. So one has to go and visit uninhabited islands. We focus, as I I stress, on uninhabited rather than the inhabited islands because a lot of the land-based tourism is geared around port to port destination. So you go from inhabited port to inhabited port. We try to avoid that. So we go to the central uninhabited islands. And so that gives you the understanding and the experience of the archipelago. And then we try to balance that with experiences on our own island, on Santa Cruz, which is very lush. It is very rich. It is interesting. You can get a slight element of the human component, which is important to understand because there is no point turning a blind eye to the reality of our islands. And then you also engage in activities which are more energetic. So you can kayak, you can bike, you can walk and be exposed to that relationship between humans and wildlife on Santa Cruz Island. So we try to combine both. So any one of our safaris will involve both island experiences and Santa Cruz visits and activities. I think that what we do more than most is the tailoring component, trying to understand what our guests are looking for and building itineraries around their their likes and dislikes, which is hard to do and it's hard work and it is hard to sell, which is why a lot of people and a lot of tour operators won't want to engage in this because it's so much easier to have your itinerary built in your software, press send and sell the trip. It's much harder to understand your client and then try to build something special for them. Absolutely. So I think that's our signature. It's completely, I mean, the human scale, it's a very different model of approaching travel as we were talking about. So where, I don't want to go deep into where we are at with COVID right now, but I think it's important to, I I want to touch, touch on a couple points that I think are relevant because Ecuador was the first country in Latin America to really shut down its borders in March quickly and has had, you know, it's had an intense period and now they're reopened for travel. I mean, how Galapagos specifically has reopened. I mean, what is the future right now look like for the Galapagos as a destination for you guys? It's such an uncertain time and I know there's no firm answers and we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but where I'm going with that's better said is obviously I feel there's some reliancy on Latin American countries and travel to open because so much of the, the travel to these remote regions comes from other places. Whereas like we were saying, you know, in the United States, there's a lot of domestic tourism or in Europe, there's still like continental travel. Mm -hmm. We're here, we're really in a situation Mm -hmm. where 
there's really not that many people in Ecuador that are going to necessarily go on vacation to the Galapagos or, you know, we can't travel even within South America right now. And so it's like, this is this question, not, of, it's like under, it's gone from not over tourism, but like this growing demand to like under demand. And like, how is Ecuador navigating that? And how do you guys, how do you guys feel about that? I mean, without committing to whatever your longer <laughs> strategy yeah. is, because nobody knows. I mean, you're completely right that there is a tremendous pressure, tremendous economic pressure. The islands are highly reliant on tourism. And the country, Ecuador itself, the tourism industry, accounts for a large part of the GDP. So it is important that we address the economic issue. Of course, being developing countries, our health systems are not as strong as we wish they were. And so we need to be mindful of that. And finding that balance between economic needs and healthcare challenges is not easy for anyone, let alone for the more fragile countries in this world. Ecuador, as you mentioned, was one of the quickest and quite successful countries, I would say, to close down. It hasn't come without its challenges, obviously, but it was time to reopen and learn with trial and error. I mean, we can't close ourselves completely and we all need to be mindful and take the necessary measures to minimize uh, risks. The Galapagos and Ecuador have been open to international travel with limitations, with demands, so to speak. So you can come to Galapagos and Ecuador with evidence of a negative PCR test. That is a measure that will somewhat limit, not completely avoid contagion, but it will limit contagion. And that's how things have started. Where this will end, I have no idea. I think that there is slight movement. People are wary of traveling. We at the camp haven't opened for business yet. We have decided to only open by appointment only. So if we were to have a private group that would merit as open, opening the camp for them exclusively, then we will. And we have taken this opportunity to reevaluate what we do, how we do things, and obviously to prepare our internal protocols to discuss what the protocols are of our service providers and make sure that things are in place so that we are able to operate with caution and with care and being mindful. We have a responsibility with our clients, with the community, with our staff, and so we cannot take this lightly. So we can't just open for business as, as usual. I don't think the world is ready for business as usual. No. Let's say, you know, once we're kind of moving into this new world after, I don't know, even after COVID, but living with it and that we're in a place where you can move less restrictive, what do you see besides the protocols? I mean, what do you envision moving forward? I mean, we have a time to reflect on a lot of things right now. I feel we're a, lot, a lot of us are pivoting. I think we're still in the process of. I don't have a clear answer. I think that we have eaten humble pie at so many levels. We're learning that whenever we think we're in control, we're actually not. There is a personal, spiritual journey that goes hand in hand 
with our first baby, which is the camp. And this is yet another milestone in our development, both as people, as a couple, as business partners, as founders of the camp and the camp itself. But we feel that we're on the right path. We need to deepen what we're doing and perhaps be more confident at speaking our truth. And what I mean by that is that before COVID, we were these tiny players who had a vision and had beliefs, but our vision and our beliefs wouldn't get us enough business to be sustainable, if that makes sense. You know, we did very well, but our occupancy levels were probably lower than most because we didn't have the marketing muscle that the big, these big players have. Our voice is a very small voice in an industry with large voices. And our message is actually really worth listening to. What we have advocated is very relevant. You know, is it okay to have a huge pool in a place without sources of fresh water? Is it okay to have air conditioning in a place where you can have natural airflow depending on how you set up your infrastructure? Is it okay to have large groups and low prices for such a pristine environment? You know, all these questions. And we didn't want to sound preachy or sit on a high horse. But those are the questions that everyone should be asking themselves at the moment. Is what I am doing appropriate? Thanks to Stephanie for so generously sharing her story and insights. I think this is exactly the kind of nature therapy we all will need after this doozy of a year. For more information on the Galapagos Safari Camp, their philosophy, and this very unique way to have a radically different Galapagos experience, go to GalapagosSafariCamp.com. You can also find them on Instagram at Galapagos underscore Safari underscore Camp. Okay, amigos, nos vemos next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, family member, coworker, or whoever could use some wonderlust in their life right now. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. They're tremendously helpful and we greatly appreciate it. For more inspiration and information on how to come travel with us in South America or bring South America into your home, visit our website at www.lizkaski.com and follow us on Instagram at LCCWE. See you guys next week. Hasta la próxima.